All right. Well, it's nice to be back with you after a week away. Uh, we are still in Exiles, our series through the book of 1 Peter. And last week, uh, you had the benefit of hearing from a dear uh, brother pastor of mine, Tyson Turner, on the topic of marriage from uh, 1 Peter, from Peter's perspective in chapter 3. And uh, I was able to catch that sermon online. It was very uh, encouraging, very challenging, uh, a little long. Uh, and so maybe you appreciate me now for my 45 or 50 minute sermons. But anyway, it was a good word. It was a really good word to wives and husbands. And so uh, my, my running half joke is that if you ever get upset with me and decide to leave Mosaic, make sure you go straight over to uh, Grace Redeemer Presbyterian so that I know that you'll be in good hands with Tyson Turner, still hearing the gospel uh, and the word of God preached faithfully. Uh, aside from the matter of him uh, baptizing babies, he's my favorite pastor in town, okay? If you know anything about being Presbyterian, you'll understand that joke. But anyway, uh, this week, Peter's going to change the topic to something that he has hit on briefly before now, uh, but that will wind up being one of the most prominent themes of his letter, and that is the subject of suffering, okay? So let's, uh, let's read our passage, and we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. First Peter 3. Picking it up in verse 8, it says this, Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. <clears throat> Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day on which we get to celebrate one of life's greatest gifts, fathers. And thank you that regardless of who our earthly father is or, or was, that you are the perfect heavenly father who we can always trust 
and rely on, who is never too busy to hear our prayer, who never stops making provision for us, and who always knows what we need better than we do before we are even able to ask. So Lord, as we open back up to 1 Peter 3 today, would you help me to teach it in a faithful, clear, and helpful way to the men and women who are here this morning? God's suffering is difficult. But you have given us all that we need in Jesus to suffer well. And so for the next several weeks, would you further equip us through your word, by your spirit, either to reconcile past sufferings, to navigate current sufferings, or prepare ourselves for future sufferings. We love you, God. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, as I already mentioned in my Father's Day exhortation, um, much in this life is uncertain, okay? We don't really live that way because I think it would just kind of unravel us to think about just how uncertain the majority of our circumstances are, but they are, they are. Most of us likely have our health, our our family, and our finances where we want them, at least to the best of our ability, but each of us is merely one unexpected phone call away from any of those things drastically changing for the rest of our lives. Cancer, car accidents, COVID-19, these are three examples out of 300 million I could mention that remind us that the future of our lives here. Is not guaranteed, it's not guaranteed to, to play out the way that we ideally envision it. We can't allow that to paralyze us because we, we still need to live our lives, right? But my point is, it's not fun to linger there because it, it truly is kind of an anxiety-inducing thought that so much of our life is uncertain, But with that uncomfortable truth in the forefront of our minds, let me just remind you of one of the reasons that the gospel is such good news. Because while much of our life here is uncertain, the hope of our salvation is not uncertain. God has sovereignly sent his son Jesus to live, die, and triumphantly rise Again, making the most valuable and absolutely inexhaustible blood atonement on the cross for all of our sin. Showing his unchallengeable authority over life and death. Establishing an unshakable kingdom for those who love him and graciously granting us inalienable rights to live for him now as we were created to, as his eternally secure children, without fear of anything difficult that this short life may send our way. Friends, the gospel, this gospel is a thousand mile deep, rock solid foundation for us to stake everything on. (laughs) It will not shift And it will not move because it has been laid by the unshifting, immovable Christ for the sake of our faith being indestructible and our hope impenetrable. It cannot be lost by our moments of 
doubt and discouragement that cannot be spoiled by our, our feeble fight with sin, and it cannot be taken from us by emperors, enemies, or inflation. Our salvation is certain. Amen? We may not be sure of much that's coming in this life, but we can be 100% sure of what's coming in the next. Perfect, lasting peace with God by the grace alone of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, and that truth, it just decimates temporal uncertainty, doesn't it? This is why the Apostle Paul Echoing the prophet Isaiah exclaims what we just sang this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because even death, the darkest, most ominous, and seemingly permanent effect of sin in our lives has been brought to nothing. It's why the New Testament writers refer to it for us as merely falling asleep. And one day, though we die, through Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, yet shall we live. And just as he called his friend and disciple Lazarus out of the tomb, he'll call our names. And we too will rise up into glory, the glory of eternal life with him forever. I hope that you feel comforted and encouraged and strengthened in the good news of the gospel today. I I know that I do. And the reason I start off with a reminder of the good news is because of how Peter begins his final line of exhortation here. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, get this last phrase here, that you may obtain a blessing. We'll get into the character of holiness that he's elaborating on, but first, it's key for us to understand this principle that enduring Christian holiness is fueled primarily by the gospel promise of future eternal blessing. Okay? I hope you can see the simplicity of this rationale in verses 8 and 9. It's not hard to see. He's saying that The ongoing motivation or fuel for holiness in the Christian life that continues on to the end, well, it's it's the end itself. So the gospel is not only where the necessity of our holiness begins, but by our being redeemed and thus conformed to the image of Christ. But as we continue down this narrow uh, road of exile in our faith, our fixation on the final blessing as well as the subsequent spiritual blessings along the way, this is what spurs us on in a life of unity, love, tenderness, and humility that blesses others, even when we may be the targets of evil and reviling as we journey along. To be clear, Jesus' promise is that he is the way, the truth, and the life Not that the way of truth and life is easy. If you're searching your Bible for that promise, you're not going to find it. Unless if you want a church that teaches that, you're at the wrong one. Sorry. Um, But if you understand, if you understand what you have signed up for, 
And that while the Christian life is not easy, Jesus is sufficient to get us through and he will be totally worth it in the end, then you will be thankful for and revived by verses like Galatians 6, 9 that double down on the words of Peter when they say, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I love that verse. I love that verse. In my early 20s, when I first started following Jesus, that was a nice, sweet verse that seemed like it should be printed on a coffee cup or something. But now, as I near my mid-30s, I've been stomped into the dirt a few times, experienced crushed dreams, bodily pain and loss. This verse is not a mere ethereal pleasantry. It's a salve for my wounds, a cool breeze and a blistering heat, a refreshing glass of water and a dry and weary land. If you too have tasted the bitter difficulties of spiritual exile, you know what I'm talking about. Suffering and sadness, they will pile on in a way that will tempt you to give up, won't they? Amen. If not, let me if you don't know that, let me warn you that you will have moments, dark nights of the soul, when the last thing you want to do is bless others, right? Last thing you'll want to do is bless others. The last thing you'll want to do is keep doing good because you're beat up and you're tired. But when you turn to Scripture, the Spirit is there urging you, no, 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 don't give up. Don't grow weary. Remember the gospel. You are going to reap. You are going to obtain a blessing. Keep going. I have chosen you. I am with you. I am your living hope. I will help you. I will strengthen you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is what the Spirit says, keep going, keep going. And so I say, enduring Christian holiness is fueled primarily by the gospel promise of future eternal blessing, right? That's what keeps us going. And it's what keeps us going in the pursuit of holiness along the way. And then skipping ahead to verses 13 through 17, we'll come back to the ones we skipped. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, <clears throat> for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, if you remember back two weeks ago, Peter has already mentioned this idea, okay? This idea of not just suffering generally, but specifically suffering for doing good, okay? And as I said last time, as foreign as this concept sounds to us as Americans, our, our culture is moving full steam ahead in this direction, the disdain for Christian values is already brewing 
in our country, though it may not be all that prevalent in Crestview just yet, it's only a matter of time before it affects us directly, where it won't matter what good we're trying to do for families and children and the marginalized in our community, because the holiness and the exclusivist mentality of our Jesus will be considered bigotry and hatred by those who demand to be celebrated in their sin. Even now, if you just go to the right zip code or dark corner of Twitter and try to talk about the biblical Christ, you'll quickly find that while full-on persecution may be a ways off, that the reviling and the slander has already begun. Okay, But anyway, I think from what is said in the rest of the New Testament, whether it be suffering generally or suffering specifically for our faith, the fact that Peter says... If it be the will of God implies, along with other passages, that suffering in the life of a believer, whenever and however it occurs, is indeed the will of God. It is the will of God. Not because God is cruel and gets some kind of sick delight out of our pain. We know that that is not the heart of of God, because we see in Jesus his, his sensitivity to human suffering. When even being God himself, he wept over the grief and heartbreak of the death of Lazarus and with his friends when he knew full well that he was going to bring him back. Right? So God is not some insensitive, masochistically motivated despot who allows us to suffer for reasons that we don't know. No, what we see in Scripture is that suffering is never meaningless. God has good purposes for everything that happens in our lives. And the darkness of suffering often becomes the backdrop for Christ's unwavering, gracious character and mission to shine most brightly in us. Do you see this in verses 13 through 17? Peter is clearly implying that when we suffer and we continue honoring Christ as holy, that is, when we suffer, we don't throw our faith away as though it has malfunctioned, but instead we cling all the more tightly to Jesus. This is peculiar, right? This is peculiar. The world does not understand this. To count it all joy when we encounter trials, as James says, this seems counterintuitive to a world that's trying to avoid any form of uncomfortableness, no matter the cost, right? Isn't the world trying to avoid uncomfortableness? We live in a world where every new car has a heater for your butt. If that's not an aversion to discomfort, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. And so when the darkness of suffering hangs over our lives and we somehow find a way to see the goodness and grace of God in the midst of that suffering, even being joyful in it, and on top of that... When we determine to continue blessing others out of our gospel hope through suffering, and the world sees 
That our commitment to holiness is not contingent upon our external circumstances. Peter says that this will give us unique opportunities to answer people's questions about what we believe. Our ability as the church to face uncertainty without fear and suffering with joy is an apologetic. That is, it's a gospel conversation starter. Okay. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, wouldn't it make sense that a light shines more brightly in the darkness than it does in the middle of the daytime? Wouldn't it? I know Ron knows, but I mean, I don't know about everyone else. Okay. <laughs> it makes sense that a light shines more brightly in the darkness than it does in the middle of the daytime. Have you ever seen those, those big spotlights used to advertise nighttime events that usually wave back and forth? They kind of crisscross like this, right? They were originally designed for military use. They're technically called searchlights, I guess. Uh, if, if you have one going during the day, people might not even see it. But whenever I see them at night, I always have the same thought come to my mind. What's going on over there? <laughs> Don't you feel that? Like when you see that, you're like, oh, what's, what's that? You know, like it's just kind of like human instinct, I think. God intends Christians who continue to joyfully and humbly bless others in the midst of their own suffering to be like searchlights to a lost world that does not even know that it is searching. You following me? And yet when it sees the light of Christ reflected in us, is inclined to say, what's going on over there? What's going on over there? So that we with gentleness and respect, can give a reason for the gospel hope that's shining in us. Okay. So you see, it's, it's not that we're just happy. We're just happy about whatever it may be that's causing our suffering. No, friends. It's not that we're, we weirdly like don't feel pain or grief or persecution. Of course we do. Of course we do. It's that we are joyful that through suffering, we have an opportunity to be a witness for our faith in Christ that transcends earthly sufferings. Okay. Our faith transcends earthly suffering. It's so compelling to me the way Paul describes this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what he says. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the gift of Sorry, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to uh, what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, that is, they go away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So you see, it's not that Christians in their suffering, are not really suffering. And so that's how they're able to stay joyful. Okay, <laughs> No, it's that Jesus helps us to suffer well. Jesus helps us to suffer well. We still suffer. We just don't fall apart in our suffering. Right? But actually, we find that Suffering oftentimes becomes just a heightened opportunity to be gospel ministers who can say, yes, suffering is painful, but it's light and momentary compared to the glorious inheritance that we are day by day getting closer and closer to receiving the the consummation when we will finally see Jesus and are united with him in the eternal age of no more tears. And even if you happen to be the one causing my suffering, I'm just as content to bless you with the good news of Christ if you'll let me. Peter says this should be our mentality, church. That's, that's some otherworldly exile type stuff, isn't it? That's the kind of stuff that gives credibility to the gospel, like we said a few, few weeks ago. Because that kind of holy, redeemed living is clearly not of this world. The mentality of the world is, you hurt me? You wrong me? You offend me? I will take you down. You're dead to me. Consider yourself canceled. Right? That's the world's mentality. But Peter says that the Christian mentality is, you wrong me, you hurt me, you say you mean things about me, I'm not offended. I just see you as a prime candidate to share Jesus with. <laughs> That's some radical stuff. That's some radical stuff that can only emanate out of a heart that's been made new by the gospel. 
All right, let's wrap it up by pulling in the final section of this passage. And I'm just going to warn you, at first it seems clear. But then, apparently it turns out to be one of the most confusing passages in in the New Testament. Uh, (laughs) And then honestly, I think it kind of becomes really simple. Um, Tying our suffering to Christ's suffering, Peter starts out by saying in verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's not very problematic, right? (laughs) In our willingness to bless others who don't know Christ and our suffering, we actually become like Christ, who suffered for us in order to bring us in and reconcile us to himself, right? So we do for others what Christ has done for us. That's clear, right? Okay. But then Peter says, thanks, Peter, in which he, that is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers who have been subjected to him. Now, that'll get your head spinning pretty quick, won't it? This could have been an easy text, (laughs) if not for the seemingly out-of-nowhere mention of spirits in prison and Noah and then baptism and then back to Jesus again. So uh, what is Peter talking about here? Maybe you're wondering. Maybe you're not wondering. You're just like, hurry up. Okay, but if you're wondering, let me tell you what Peter's talking about here. The first thing I need to tell you is that no one knows for sure, okay? That's the first answer. No one knows for sure. In terms of Highly debated passages of New Testament scripture, this one is at the top of the list. That said, it really means, I think, one of two things that could both make good sense. And I'm going to advocate for one over the other, but at the end of the day, both could work and not violate our trust in the Bible. The two things that really differentiate how you interpret all of this are in verses 19 and 20. It says that Christ went... And proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. So the big questions here are, who are these spirits? And when did Christ go and preach to them? One view that is relatively popular is that the spirits he's talking about are evil demonic spirits that have already been imprisoned and are simply awaiting their final judgment. Proponents of this view would say that Jesus, after his death, and yet before his resurrection, went into Hades, a kind of in-between place for the dead before judgment, and he proclaimed judgment to these evil spirits because his death had once and for all sealed their fate. Okay, That could be what Peter's saying. I don't think it is. Okay, just because I think a lot of people read, I'm saying this, I think a lot of people read this and that's what they think. They're like, oh, he went, wow, he like went down into hell or something. Like, what did he do? Okay, anyway, this could be what Peter's saying. I don't think it is. 
I'll tell you two reasons why. The, the first thing is that the point of gospel preaching is to bring about repentance. And these demonic spirits have no remaining offer to repent. Okay? <laughs> if you're familiar with Jesus' dealings with demons and the gospel accounts, they already know their fate, don't they? They already know their fate. One demonic spirit in particular in Matthew's gospel even verbalizes to Jesus. He says, I know who you are, son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's what he says. I draw from these kinds of interactions that demons exist, okay, first of all, and they are well aware that the time is coming when Jesus will send them to hell once and for all. And so why would Jesus go and preach to them? Why would he go and preach to them? Maybe he did. But if there's a good reason for that, I don't see it. Okay, the second reason I don't think this is what happened is because this seems contextually random. Okay, clearly Peter is telling us something about Noah and the flood that's supposed to relate to everything else that he's been saying from verse 8 until now. So here's what I think Peter is saying. And this is supported by other reputable Bible teachers. I think what Peter's saying <clears throat> through verses 18 to 22 is that Noah was an Old Testament model of spiritual exile. That's not so complicated now, is it? <laughs> Noah was an Old Testament model of spiritual exile. So li listen to this again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the re resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. So I believe that in verse 19, Peter is saying this, <clears throat> that Christ, okay, in the Spirit, went and proclaimed a pre-gospel message of repentance and faith through Noah, okay? Through Noah in the days when he was building the ark, okay? And so the spirits in prison are the people who God patiently extended grace to in the days of Noah, but who ultimately chose not to repent, okay? See, because in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter refers to Noah as a herald of righteousness, okay? A herald is a messenger, someone who's proclaiming news. And we know from the Old Testament to the New Testament, righteousness, it only comes by faith, okay? And so putting all that together, Peter's basically saying, in regards to suffering well and blessing others in the midst of our suffering, consider Noah. <laughs> consider Noah who is an example for us. Noah and his sons were a minority in their time. Can we resonate with that? <laughs> Noah and his sons were a minority in their time. Genesis 6 says that human wickedness had increased in the earth to the point that God regretted making mankind. 
That's how bad sin had gotten. But Noah, we find out, was a lone, faithful man who walked with God, and so God determined to start over with just Noah and his family. The way he did that, you know this, was through a worldwide flood. And so he instructs Noah to begin building a boat bigger than a football field, okay, uh, which took him somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 years to build, all right? And in that time frame, Noah became not only a shipbuilder, but a gospel preacher, okay? Undoubtedly, the people of the ancient world would have mocked him for spending his life building a giant boat nowhere near the ocean. (laughs) And Noah used these opportunities of being slandered for his faith to proclaim the opportunity to repent and trust God in faith or else perish in a flood that was coming to wipe away all the wickedness that was being done. And so Peter brings baptism into the conversation because baptism, get this, I know this is a lot, okay? (laughs) Baptism for the believer in Christ is not a physical washing, okay? It's a spiritual symbol of our faith. And so when we are plunged under the water in baptism, water represents death, okay? Just as the Genesis flood brought death. But like Noah, we are saved out of the waters of death into new life by our faith in Christ. Okay? <laughs> so Noah showed his appeal to God for a good conscience by banking his life on the ark. We show our faith by banking our life on the cross and Jesus' resurrection. Do you, you see the parallel here? <laughs> see the parallel So Noah is an Old Testament model of spiritual exile, and here's what he models for us. We, though blessed, suffer, that we might extend the blessing of being brought to God to others in Christ. Okay. This was the ultimate purpose of Noah's suffering. And likewise, it is the ultimate purpose of our suffering, to extend the blessing that we've received in the gospel to others who need it, that they might be brought to God through faith in Jesus. Okay. Noah spent much of his life building a boat. We will spend the rest of our lives striving to advance Jesus' church, okay? building up the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom of God. Noah suffered Mockery, ridicule, and slander for a hundred years. But he endured because he believed God. That judgment was coming for the unrepentant, but that blessing was coming for the faithful. And likewise, we too will suffer and likely at some point be mocked and ridiculed for our faith. But Noah is our Old Testament example. The ongoing holiness is fueled primarily by the gospel promise of future blessing. Okay? He's our example. Noah is our example to just keep building. (laughs) Just keep building. And when we're mistreated or we suffer 
to just keep blessing. Okay? Not to give up when we encounter suffering. Not to hold people's unbelief against them because Jesus pushed through the suffering and Jesus did not hold our unbelief against us and yet he went to the cross that we might be saved. You see, suffering will drive us in one of two directions, okay? Suffering will drive us in one of two directions. Suffering will either cause us to feel sorry for ourselves and selfishly go inward, or suffering will remind us of the example of Christ, causing us to remember why we are still here, to lovingly and humbly extend the blessing of the gospel to the others who need it. Okay? Let me just say this plainly. Christian, any temporal suffering in your life is so that others don't have to suffer for eternity. Any temporal suffering in your life is so that others do not have to suffer for eternity. Paul says this. I didn't come up with that. It is good. 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Suffering is a part of spiritual exile that we will not escape. Don't let it stop you, church. Don't let it stop you. Keep building. Keep blessing. Don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap if you don't give up. Many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the famous old gospel hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. It's a good one, isn't it? I love that one. It's written by a man named John Newton. John Newton began his adult life as a British slave trader. And when he got saved, he became a pastor and an abolitionist. Since today is not only Father's Day, but Juneteenth, I figure John Newton is a good name to reference. Aside from Amazing Grace, he wrote other things as well. In one of his memoirs, he wrote a striking parable that I will close with. It went like this. He said, Suppose that a man was traveling to a city to take possession of a large estate. 
and his carriage should break down one mile before he got to the city, which forced him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think he was if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all that remaining mile, that remaining mile my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. That's the end of the parable. Its meaning in the context of Christian suffering is apparent. We are the man. We are the man. The city that we're going to is heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And the large estate that we are going to possess is our inheritance in Christ, eternal life. It is not compelling to anyone when as Christians, because of our sufferings, we go about blubbering with a bad attitude and wringing our hands through life when we are so close to home. Your carriage, friend, is bound to break down. Don't go inward. Stay sympathetic. This is what Peter says. Stay sympathetic. Stay loving. Stay compassionate. And stay humble. Keep blessing others regardless of how you're treated. God's eyes are on you. That is, he has not left you in your suffering. He is keenly aware of your needs. And he continues to hear your prayers. So keep turning away from evil, keep pursuing peace, and keep doing good. That's holiness in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Thank you for your word. It's always true. It always has timely things for us to consider. God, I myself needed this text today, as my friends here know. But Father, I know that all of us are going to need this text. We're all dearly going to need to cling to this text about suffering because we all will suffer in this life. But Jesus, you will prove to always be enough for us. You will get us through. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. I pray that you'd bless us now. Help us to remember these things as we continue laboring on in our exile. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.